Remember that scene in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise leaves his company to start up his own? He asks, who's with me? And only one person and a goldfish join him. If that was David Shane, I think everyone would have got out of their chairs and followed him out the door. David is the embodiment of humility, calm, warmth, growth, compassion and achievement. With mantras that focus on customers, staff and partners, he has priorities which firmly align with modern day workplace, cultural and value driven practices. But David started out as an accountant and he is resolute in his beliefs that cash flow and profitability are the absolute lifeblood of a business. David is a true Australian success story and he has very much inspired me in my business and life pursuits. Enjoy. David Shane, Executive Director at Our Crowd, partner Our Innovation Fund, member Government Advisory Board to advance women's participation in innovation and tech. Welcome to Discipline. Thank you, Tony. Now, you have the most diverse set of roles of anyone I've interviewed, mentor, entrepreneur, investor, all-round good guy. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? I'm not sure. To be honest, I wasn't a good student at school. Uh, I went to the Army, did national service for two years in South Africa, finished at 19 and uh, came out and thought uh, uh, myself, geez, I'm old. I better do something with my life. did an accounting degree. Yep. And I was lucky enough to discover personal computers yes. in the early 80s and... Uh, it fascinated me, not from a technical point of view, because I'm not technical at all, but more from a business application point of view, the value you could add to a customer using, you know, it sounds crazy today, but this was in 1980, 81, yep. using accounting software like, yeah, it wasn't Maya or Zero, but it was called um, Appack. Yes, uh, yep. Or uh, using a spreadsheet was called VisiCalc in those yes, days. Yes, I remember that too. And the value you could add for a customer using using tools like an accounting software or or a spreadsheet, the difference could make to a business. And I think today everybody can see, you know, or probably wonders how how the hell did you ever manage to run a business without a spreadsheet or a or accounting software package? And had you when you'd left university with your accounting degree, um, you emigrated to Australia in the 1980s, um, and you're about 26. I was 26. So, had you started a business in South Africa or been involved in that in that enterprise before? Uh, no, not in. The, I did start within. I worked for Price Waterhouse, and yeah. within Price Waterhouse, I started a uh, a microcomputer division within the small business okay. practice. Yeah, and used to put small business on on a computer. Yeah. So in that in those days it was as I say it was just you know maybe a an accountant or a bookkeeper using a single PC doing well doing, was it the old wise green screen or no, something? No, it was in those days there was already IBM PCs. Okay, yeah. I started on Apple IIe. Yeah, and uh, but in, when I went to Pricewaterhouse, the IBM had already come out, and uh, I was using some software called Appack. Yep, and uh, yeah, we were talking about that the other day. The old um, Five and a quarter inch floppy disk yep. with a big, used to hit it. Sound like a tin tin uh, box. I remember leaving, emigrating in nineteen eighty six. Bought an IBM computer that I wanted to last me a long time. It had <laughs> twenty megabytes of disk storage space and a and a VGA monitor. Yeah, and I think it was, as we all know, probably obsolete within a year. It's unbelievable. Um, 
We all know that South Africa had a few troubles in the 80s, but many people stayed. So why did you journey across to the other side of the Southern Hemisphere? I came to Australia in 1981 for my first time, actually with an amazing founder. He was the guy, Robbie Brosen, who was the founder of Nando's. Uh, okay. We started about the same time, actually, just purely by chance. Uh, but Robbie and I were 21, arrived in Sydney and... Uh, took a car, didn't drive for more than an hour and a half, whichever beach we landed on. Coming from Johannesburg in South Africa, there was no beach. Uh, Spent the morning on a beach. The afternoon, the West Indies and Pakistan were in Australia. We used to watch uh, cricket in the afternoon at yeah. a little motel. Yeah. About 20 bucks a night. Yeah. And you'd go to a pub. So it was beach, cricket, beer for about three weeks and thought this is God's own country. I want to live that again now. I mean, that's, uh, that's and, ideal. Uh, you know, I thought it was God's own country then. I still think it's God's own country today. Yeah. Um, and when you came across, though, as an um, immigrated here, did you have any networks or...? Uh, no. My wife, uh, my wife was ex-South African but had lived in Australia for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't really know anybody other than my, my wife and her family and... Uh, I took a job with a, a small business software company. Yeah. That turned out to be the luckiest break I ever had. I was paid badly, treated badly, hated going to work every day. And uh, I thought there was ever an opportunity to start my own company. My opportunity cost that was, was, it. was that low. I had a wife and a young kid. It was earning $2,000 a month. And I thought after nine months, if I can't earn $2,000 for myself, I'll, I'll go get a job. And you didn't want to go back into a PwC and do anything like accounting? No, I love I loved being involved in sales and marketing. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I really loved my time at PwC. I wasn't really involved in much in auditing or in the accounting side. I was involved in selling accounting solutions to yeah. small business. And I really I felt I made a massive difference to those business, not because of me, because of the value and the power of, of personal computers and accounting software. Yeah. So you saw this opportunity, wanted to make $2,000 a month, but what made you think that you could run a business? What skill set did you think that you had that would, would help you in this endeavor? I, look, probably the biggest skill set that I had was I was 26, naive and stupid and didn't, <laughs> and didn't know what I didn't know. You know, if I, if I knew now what, you know, if someone came and presented my business plan to me today, I'd say, mate, are you out of your, out of, are you out of your mind? And it was just... You know, being young and naive has its has lots of benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what about the technology? Obviously, you you've said already that things are evolving rapidly in yeah. personal computing space at this time. What was the uh, what was the the attraction to obviously the value that you add to business? But what else attracted you? Was there? Did you see that this was going to be a, a huge space down the track? Yeah, I think you could you could see what was happening with personal computers in the early eighties. Yeah, you'd have maybe a PA using a PC with the word processing yep. software instead of having a typewriter. You'd see an accountant using a PC and maybe an Excel spreadsheet to, in those days, a sort of busy calculator, a Lotus one, two, three spreadsheet to you know, do budgeting and cash flow forecasting, maybe do the accounting, the, you know, the general ledger and accounts receivable. But you could then start seeing more and more people wanting to save access to information, wanting to be sharing devices like printers and uh, and you could just see that you know, PCs were going to become pervasive and uh, I got involved really on the networking side in the yeah 
in the mid to late eighties, and you could just you could just sense that it was going to boom. And you started a business that was called Comtech. Did you have any access to capital, or did you just uh, no. buy a few boxes? And- I uh, bought a few boxes and a little bit of a little bit of inventory, and uh, yeah. Gave it a go. And what was your philosophy as, as you got into business? What was your philosophy? Where did you think your skills were and where did you focus? So I always say in every business there's three kinds of skills. You need salespeople, admin people, and technical people. And technical people, not just in the computer industry. If you're running a restaurant, your chef's the technical person. If you're in a media company, you know, your journalists are the technical people. Um, so in my industry, technical people were technical people, people who could install networks. Yep. I knew that no matter how many training courses I went to, I was never going to be able to install a network. I'm not technically literate, never have been, never will be. I knew if I had to do the books, I could, because I was an accountant by profession, but I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to focus on sales and marketing. Yep. So when I started, I was a one-man band. I did everything. Uh, First person I hired was after about six months. Where was my weakness? It was on the technical side, yep. so I hired a tech guy. The third person I hired, uh, the second person that I hired, the third person, including myself, was an admin guy. And probably the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh person was technical people because I always worried if the first guy left, I'd have more than more than didn't want to have a key man risk. Yeah. Yep. And. Uh, yeah, and that was so. That was my first philosophy: was that you, you nobody's good enough to do everything, and uh, I, I made sure that you would. I would surround myself with people in those areas that I would never ever be able to do, or those areas that I may be able to do that I didn't want to do, and I would just focus on what I was what I was good at. My second philosophy is really really simple: it's it's take care of your customers, your your business partners, and your staff, or someone else will. Yeah, and uh, it's easy to say that. You know, I've never seen a, a CEO or a founder or anybody ever say, "You know, number one asset is our furniture and fittings. Number <laughs> two is computers. Number three is motor vehicles, and number four are people." The hard part is actually living and breathing that 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 mantra. Yeah, and importantly, it would be easy to achieve that if you didn't have this other juggling ball called cash flow and profitability. You know, it would be really, really easy to keep your staff happy if you paid. You know, 50% more than market-related salaries. Yep. You said this is a pretty stressful industry. You know, don't take four weeks leave. We'll give you eight weeks leave. You know, you'd be a great company to work for for about six months. Likewise, you know, with customers, uh, it would be easy if you, you know, you'd charge way under uh, market prices for a product or a service. If you over-service product with the level of support you provided, yeah, once again, you'd be a great supplier for a short period of time. So somehow management or leadership is about saying, how do we genuinely take care of our customers, our suppliers and our, our, our staff, but at the same time, we've got to actually generate positive cash flow and make a buck. And yeah, at the end of the day, I think you're really you know, probably the first of what you've seen in, in the current era, not in the dot-com in, in the early 2000s, but if you go and look at WeWork, eventually someone said, how the hell is this company going to make it back? Yeah. And you know, while companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon didn't make money for a long period of time, they always had a path to profitability. Yes. And eventually, a company like an Uber or a WeWork or an Uber Eats to a certain extent will have to say, how do we make 
how do we, we we've grown yeah we've, we've shown we can we can build a brand and build a business but can we actually build a long-term sustainable business we actually generate profits and cash flow yeah and that's what management's about yeah i'm going to go off piste with you a little bit here because this is interesting in the tech world where you see people raise money and the first thing they do is fit out an office and you know a couple of years ago it was fashionable to have a ping pong table and a foosball yep. table and a converted warehouse um, because you want to attract the best people yep. so how how can you balance that in a world where you're trying to attract the talent um, and yet you still got to keep an eye to revenues and profitability so yeah at the end of the day it's uh, in my opinion yeah having a yoga class at work or allowing you to bring your puppy to work or having the ping pong table doesn't mean you're going to keep attracting and retain staff. In my opinion, you attract and retain staff by by building a culture, an amazing culture in a company of which potentially the puppies and the football you know, the football tables and the ping pong tables are, are bonuses. But it's not, you know, if people are going to come to your company because you've got a ping pong table, because you've got a nice fancy office they're not going to start last for long. So I always look at what did I not like when I had my first job in Australia. I wasn't happy with my salary. I hated coming to work and I had no say in what I did. I was almost told that leave your brain at the front door and pick it up on the way home. Yeah, yeah. So I always felt that if I was going to ever hire somebody, I'd want to make sure I paid a market-related yeah. salary, that, I, that people loved coming to work because they loved, they loved the way the company worked. And, and mainly, in my opinion, it's about respect. It's respecting people no matter what role they perform in the company, whether they're answering a telephone or reception, whether they're the best salesperson in the company, whether they pack a box in your warehouse. It's, it's, it's making sure that everyone knows that they're part of a team and no one's more important than the team. And, and that's, in my opinion, whether you're millennial, a Gen X, a Gen Y, a baby boomer, in all the time I've, I've, I've managed people, and one of the benefits of being old or older is is that I've worked with millennials and I've worked with baby boomers, I've worked with Gen Xs and Gen Ys, and I really believe that people stay in companies because of the culture of their company and the way and the regard people treat people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I may be wrong, but in all the time I've, I've, I've been in business, uh, it's worked for me. Well, I reckon you're probably on the on the money because um, you've been described as an incredibly positive person to work for, and your workplaces have always reflected this. Um, and I believe you know one of your uh, workplaces, Comtech, won awards for being the best place to work for in Australia a couple of times. So, you know, you've had this. Um, idea and philosophy and you've also got a balance in the early days uh, the, the cash flow yep. so you know you must have had times where it was very difficult to keep that positive energy how do you how do you do that as an individual so, well it's it's uh, I think I am a positive person by nature but business is never easy being a founder or being an entrepreneur is never never easy yeah and uh uh, there's always challenges. You know, somebody once said to me, Dave, you said, I'm worried you look tired. I said, mate, you should worry when I don't look tired. You know, and uh, and uh, I, I think whether, you know, if you go and look at Mark Zuckerberg at the moment, or you go and, you know, as I was uh, listening to Bill Gates the, the, um, on Netflix, there's a program now inside Bill, yep. Bill's brain. And, you know, if you look at the aggravation that he would have gone through when Microsoft, when the, government and the regulators wanted to split Microsoft and uh, 
it, it would have been draining. So no matter how successful companies are, Facebook is unbelievably successful, but there are always challenges. You know, as a leader, as someone once told me, sometimes you have to make shit taste like chocolate. You know, if you walk around with your head down, everybody's going to think, she's Dave looking worried, like something must I be wrong. I should be worried. I should be worried. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, just you, you, you've, you've got to be positive. And of, and, of course, when we had issues and challenges, I always shared them with everybody in the company or especially the people relevant because I always, I always figured if we had a problem in sales and you didn't share it with salespeople, how the hell are we going to fix the problem? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I always said we had problems in every part of our company. I think at the time, I think people would have said we were, yeah, probably, yeah, without being arrogant, the best-run tech company in Australia. But I can truly say there was not one quarter where I could say everything was going, you know, was going unbelievably well. You may have had a problem in sales, you fix that, then it's in tech support, fix that, then it's in, you know, in, in collecting money, then it's in, in your warehouse, and it just, it's just ongoing. It's, it's ongoing. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 tough, but unbelievably rewarding uh, when things go well, and, uh, and 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 things going well is not just a positive financial outcome. It's at seeing people achieve things that they never believed that they were po- they were capable of achieving. Yeah, and that happened to me. You know, if you had said to me when I started in 1987 that one day you're going to run a company with 1,400 people and with uh, uh, you know, $700 million revenue, you would have said, "What have you been smoking?" That's exactly what I would have said, <laughs> mate. So I would have said, "Tony, geez, what the hell did you drink so early in the morning?" And yet somehow I was I achieved it, but there was. A whole lot of people, you know, the guy who runs my old company today, guy Steve Nola, gave him his first job out of Telstra. He was 23. His first budget was about $1.8 million. And Steve, uh, he's got a really great Italian guy with an olive complexion, went pale. And uh, I probably was doing about $1.8 million a year at the time. And today, Steve runs the whole company. Wow. There's probably 2,000 people in the company, maybe more, I'm not even sure. And yeah, probably billion dollars of revenue. It's a great, great so, story of growth. Yeah, if you had said that to Steve at the time, and as I say, I could literally, I could write a whole book on, on different people and what they achieved. And all of us were young, you know, enthusiastic, and uh, you know, I think had a great attitude. And we just wanted to succeed. We wanted to do the best for our customers. We wanted yeah. to do the best for our staff. What about going back to the early days? Uh, you know, there must have been some times where you thought, "Jesus, what have I done here? This is this is this is never going to happen for me." You must have read my book, Tony. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, for, probably for the first year, I used to think, "What's this little joke cost me?" Because it took about a year before. The networking side took off. Yeah. In fact, to pay the bills, I started installing accounting system. That's what I knew, and and I had a few customers who are who are sold accounting system, uh, software to. And uh, after about a year, the networking side started taking off, and I think I was clever enough to say I, I handed over those customers that on the accounting software side to one of the one of the accounting firms. Uh, because I made up my mind I was going to really focus the networking side yeah. is where I saw the massive opportunity and I knew I couldn't do two things well it was going to be one or the other and I knew it was it was going to be the networking side yep um, and looking back now I mean there's obviously some things you wish you'd done differently are there any 
mistakes that you've ever looked back and kept you awake at night and thought, geez, if only I had done this. One of, one of my original shareholders one day said to me, after we sold the company many years later, he said that I made lots of bad mistakes and bad business decisions. And I said to him, you're right. I made heaps of bad mistakes. I said, but luckily the few good ones I made outweighed all the, all, all the poor um, bad ones I made. And uh, there are always things you can do better. I mean, we did make, you know, probably the biggest mistake I ever made was uh, we had uh, three, it was the dream team. We sold Novell, uh, Synoptics, two companies you've probably never heard of. I remember Novell Networks. And, uh, and Cisco. Yeah. It was literally the dream team. Yeah. All three companies had uh, probably over 70% market share. Yeah. And one day I woke up, I think it was about 1993, before the internet, uh, before email was even pervasive, and got a call from the, the head of Synoptics in Australia, a guy down in Melbourne, Steve Wood. He said, Dave, great news, we've just merged with Wellfleet. So Synoptics had just merged with Cisco's biggest competitor, and we were sort of put in a corner. You know, I always say, when you're running a business and it's uh, things don't go well and it's in your control, it's your fault. But there's nothing worse when when things affect you that are outside of your control. And this was a massive, a massive, going to have a massive impact on our business um, because I knew we couldn't sell both Synoptics. And keep both masters happy. And, and Cisco. Yeah. And uh, we took a decision to actually go with the merged company of Synoptics and, and Wellfleet, which became Bay Networks. And uh, the day... We made that decision. I knew we made the wrong decision. Really? Yeah. I said to my brother, I said, we, we've backed the wrong horse. It was, it was really obvious. I made it. I, should, I, I did. I consulted probably too many people. And uh, the tech guys all said to me, the future is uh, is what the merge company, where the merge company was going. They probably didn't take into account the challenges that merge companies often have. Yeah. You had one company in San Francisco, another one in Boston. Yeah. And... Everything looked amazing on paper, but it was a disaster once they, they tried to merge the two companies. Yeah. And uh, could have killed our business. And I was lucky enough, 18 months later, the CEO of Cisco, uh, John Chambers, came to see me. And I always, it was a great lesson for me because I always say, if I just, a customer spent $10,000 a year with me in Tasmania and they'd pissed me off, I'm not sure if I would have gone to take the time to say, I want to extend the olive branch and I really want to build a partnership with you again. And 18 months later, we re-signed with Cisco and that luckily changed our... I, I could never have gone back to Cisco um, and shown weakness. It, it was important that they came back to us. And, uh, you know, that, that change saved and made our business what it was yeah. when we exited. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm going to... Fast forward a little bit now, and I'm going to quote this back to you because it's a pretty succinct summary of your time at Comtech. 14 years later, Comtech was sold to Dimension Data at an enterprise value of over a billion. At the time of the sale, Comtech employed over 1,400 people, had offices Australia-wide, achieved revenues of over 700 million, and at no time during this period did Comtech require external debt. So you've ticked a huge amount of boxes here, massive exit, Massive employer of people, Australian-wide company, great revenues, no debt. Um, this is a, a great success story. If you had to pin it down to one thing that kept you going and you know made you the success that it uh, it turned out to be, what is it? 
So that kept me personally going Yeah, kept the company going? Well, both then. Let's take both. So I think what kept me going was I, I can get bored easily. And uh, I think if I was just selling the valve for 14 years, I probably would have gone crazy and wouldn't have. Uh, I think the, the amazing thing about our industry was it kept changing. So there would be Navel, and then there was Synoptics, and then there was Cisco, and then there was video conference, and then there was the internet. It kept, it was the same company, but it kept evolving with yep. amazing new technology that was literally revolutionizing. Fast moving, yeah. yeah. That was revolutionizing the world. What kept the company going was we just ran that company on unbelievably simple, on, on simple business philosophy. Uh, yeah, I always used to say I have five KPIs, and we used to look at our company every year and see how we benchmarked ourselves against those KPIs. Yep. And those KPIs were, and not in any particular order, were what is our market standing? What is our ability to attract customers, staff, and business partners to our company? Two is innovative performance. What are we doing differently this year to what we did this year, to what we did last year? You know, you can't, you can't sit still for a minute in any industry. Yep. Three is productivity or better uh, term today, digital transformation. How we make it easier for our staff to work at Comptech and how we make it easier for our customers to do business with Comptech. And four or five and five or any lousy account of which I'm one will tell you is that you have to generate positive cash flow and you have to make a buck. Yeah. And all five are important. Now, the great companies are companies that you can put a tick in the box for all five that you know, when you think of a great company like a Microsoft or like a Google or like an Apple, and you go and take those five things, what is their market standing? What is their innovative performance? When Steve Jobs passed away, what did everybody worry about? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. Three is digital transformation. Yeah, have you ever tried to buy an Apple product? You can buy it online. You can go to the Apple store. You can go to Harvey Norman. You can go to Jack. It's unbelievably easy to do business. And I'm sure I've never worked at Apple, but I'm sure they have an amazing system for their staff to do their job. Yeah. And four and five, you know, cash flow and profit, they all print money. So when companies when companies start going backwards is when, you know, when before Satya Nadella took over at Microsoft, Microsoft was, in my opinion, was on its way to irrelevance. They would have, been around for many, many years. They were. They were. Yeah. You know, BlackBerry exists, but they're relevant. You know, BlackBerry died. Nobody would care. You know, when Apple was uh, in its first phase, you know, everyone saw Apple as this amazing, innovative company and that their market standing was probably not that great in terms of what their market share was. They never, they, they never made it back, you know, compared to Microsoft, and that's why they almost went out of business. So it's now you're saying we're unbelievably good in one of the five. Yep. You, know, you can you can do things in the short term that say well, we're going to improve our cash flow and profitability. We're going to lay off staff. We're going to we're going to uh, not invest in R and D and innovation this year. So sure, you'll have a, a a far more profitable quarter or year this year than you had last year. But what's going to happen to your customer satisfaction? What's going to happen to your staff satisfaction? What's going to happen to your your innovation? When, when competitors start leapfrogging. So somehow, you know, you have to manage short, which is your cash flow and profitability, and you have to manage long as well, which is you're investing in your, in your customer satisfaction, yes. your staff satisfaction, which is your market awareness, investing in your, in your in, in innovation, and three, 
investing in digital transformation, transforming your company to lower your cost of doing business. Yeah, one of the uh, earlier episodes of Discipline, I talked to someone about uh, the Rockefeller habits, which was there's two important numbers in business, 30 days and 20 years or, or 10 years. So yep. uh, it's got some similar themes to that. Yep. You know, 14 years is a good time horizon to be in a business. There must have been opportunities where people had come knocking and said, uh, David, you know, time to exit now, or shareholders had said, uh, let's get out now, it's great business. What was the what was the sort of motivation to leave when you did? Surprisingly, no one ever knocked on our door until Dimension Data came right. 14 years later. But I will say I was not surprised. You know, I, was, I worked unbelievably hard and... Uh, yeah, my wife always used to tell me you work so hard and I said one day someone's going to knock on my door and uh, I'm going to want to buy the company she said you'll never sell it I said trust me I will <laughs> and she couldn't believe it when someone did knock on my door yep. and I did sell it but I really believe if you build a long term sustainable company you always have lots of options yep. you can either acquire companies you can merge with companies you can IPO yep. or you can sell your company and, and that's why I wasn't shocked when we did get a knock on our door because in, in, the, in the space that we operated in, which was networking communications, we were the best company in Australia. Yeah. Um, when you sold out, you, you obviously did spend a bit of time, no doubt, with the family and pay back some, uh, some debt to the, to the wife in terms of family time. Yeah. Um, but why not just sail around the world for 20 years? Why jump back into the world of business? What... What, what's the motivation there? So I, uh, the worst year of my life was the year I left the company and I did nothing for a year. And I think if I've ever, ever come close to being depressed, it would have been that year. Really? So you go from a million miles an hour to zero and it's, it, was pretty, it was pretty hard. Yeah. And the Die Data guys did ask me to stay on as a non-executive chairman. They said, just have an office and you can come in whenever you want to come in and some people may be able to do that. I wasn't the kind of person who could go and say, I'll be here. And if I go, only because I've used his name before, Steve Naylor, who I've worked with since, uh, yeah, for 12 years, came and said, Dave, what do you think I should do with this? I could never have said to Steve, yeah, sorry, Steve. Um, yeah, I don't run the company. Speak to the CEO or speak to... Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I'm just not that kind of a person. So I knew I, I, knew I was either going to be in or out, and I had to be out. And about a year after I left the company, there was a guy from a company that I'd actually made a tiny investment in. He asked me to come and help him. He was having problems with his partner. And I actually fired his partner because I actually was the chairman of that company, a company called Holly. And uh, six months after I'd been to help the, the, the founder, Lance, at Holly, he said, Dave, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And I said, Lance, I can't thank you enough for helping me. It was... Um, it was a great opportunity for me to realize I yeah. could still make a difference without being the main guy. Yeah, Lance right. was the main guy. Yeah. I was the non-executive chairman, but I could still make a difference to that company sitting one level above where I was. So what changed though? I mean, you say, you know, when you came out 19, it was all about beer, cricket and, and, and beaches. Yeah. And then you've gone through this work phase and, you know, you've got that opportunity again, but you, you, it upset you. Because... A holiday is fun when it's a holiday. Yeah. A holiday is not fun if you do that every single day of your life. You know, it's like someone who has, you know, golf or cycling as, as a hobby. It's a hobby is, is awesome when you're playing once or twice a week. Yeah. Doing it every single day yeah, yeah. becomes work. It's not a hobby anymore. Yeah. And uh, 
I had a, an uncle who, who uh, gave me some amazing advice. I don't think it was his words, but he said, if you want to be happy in life, you need three things. You need someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And, and the reason holidays are great is because it's something to look forward to. Yes. And, and I think it's amazing advice for anybody is that, is that you, you have to do something. You have to have a purpose in Keep your life. Keep your hands busy. And yeah, my purpose was, you know, when you said at the outset that one of my things is being a mentor, like I love helping people. Yep. That's, uh, that's what you know, gives me my satisfaction. Yes. And I said, I said before, there are three things that, you know, to keep staff, and I'm no different. It's good remuneration, job satisfaction, having a say in what you do, and all three important. Yeah. It's no use saying to someone, or someone saying, I love coming to work, but I can't pay my bills. It's no use saying, I hate my job, but they pay me a backload of money here to come to work every day. But likewise, no use saying, I'm told to leave my brain at the front door and pick it up on the way home. I've got these amazing ideas, but nobody wants to listen to them. What about, I mean, it hasn't all been wine and roses. There's always something that uh, is a kick in the guts. And um, E-Diamond International, which you were involved with, wasn't a, a great success. Um, what about the lessons you, you said from well, that? Well, I was introduced to the founder of E-Diamond uh, through a, a good friend of mine who I actually met from Holly. He told me what they were doing. It sounded like a great idea. And I actually happened to be in South Africa in 2010 for the Soccer World Cup. And I met the founder and took an instant dislike to him. Didn't trust him, didn't like him. But I spoke to the guy, my friend in Australia. He said, Dave, you've, mis- you've misread the guy. He's an awesome guy. I was at school with him in Zimbabwe. He's the most knowledgeable guy. He's, he's, he's just an awesome guy. I should have gone on my gut feel because it turned out he wasn't so awesome and he wasn't so knowledgeable and he wasn't so smart. And uh, you know, probably the worst part of that was you know, when you invest in venture capital, startups, you know, losing your own money is, is, is hard. And But there's nothing worse than losing someone else's yep. money. And E-Diamond was one of the first ventures that had actually taken other people's money. And I knew I shouldn't have backed the founder, and I did. And you know, it came back to bite me. So it seems like just to... Interrupt. It seems like the couple of times you've you've looked back on things, like the Cisco decision and this particular one, you yeah. haven't backed your gut instinct. Yeah, and I think I uh, yeah there was a great show on TV called The Loudest Voice at the Table, and I actually thought if I ever wrote a book, I'd call mine the dumbest the dumbest voice at the table, because yeah I've worked with so many unbelievable people that I, I really always say put me at any boardroom table or any ta- any meeting room, I always say I'll have the lowest IQ at that table. And, but what I do have is I have a very, very good gut and very, I'm, I'm, I think that's my strength. High EQ. EQ. And uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. In the Cisco decision, I should have gone with my gut. On the E-Diamond decision, I should have gone with my gut. Yeah. And every time I failed, and sometimes I failed because I haven't backed the right founder because I didn't like the valuation. And you know, my biggest failure on that would be Afterpay, where I was offered an opportunity to invest at a $20 million valuation. And uh, loved the founder, awesome founder. In fact, I actually told him it reminded me of a young David Shane, well, so I probably didn't think that much of because I didn't back him. But uh, I thought the valuation was too, too high. high. And uh, you know, once again, the best lesson that I got from that, pay a premium for an exceptional founder. Yeah, right. 
So I was going to come to your investment philosophy. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to any kind of investment, valuation, the person, the market opportunity. I mean, you walk into a room, I'm sure you've got people around you that brief you on the specifics and the analytics in the market. What are you looking for when someone sits down? How do you judge in this small amount of time whether that person is going to be exceptional? So I just think that's my my skill. I think... uh yeah, not everyone's as exceptional as Nick turned out at, at Afterpay. Yeah, but we've had amazing success with companies that have got five times exits. I mean, by the way, if there's any sugar coating on the Afterpay thing, we did back zip money at a $2 million valuation. As I say, I think that's my skill. You know, if I go back and look at what did I do unbelievably well, I hired some amazing people uh, without ever looking at CVs, without worrying if they had tertiary qualifications. In fact, I often used to love it when I'd see IBM advertising for people that worked in our in our industry saying, you know, on the bottom, would say tertiary qualification required, so thank God they can't headhunt half our staff. So we, we hired people on, on their attitude yep. and their ability, yeah. not on what you know, what school did this guy go to, what, what grades did they get at uni. It was are they gonna have the attitude and ability to to do the job that we look at job. So if I come in, I'm pitching to you. Um, what do I? What do I need to do? Just be myself, or yeah, definitely. You've got to be yourself. You've really got to know. You've got to know what problem your product or service is going to solve, and be unbelievably articulate in why. You know why you believe you have a you have a shot at beating anyone else out in the marketplace. Would you prefer if someone comes in, someone who's a technical founder, or someone who's a natural salesperson? So I've always, whenever I see diversity and inclusion, I always, it always dumbfounds me because I always believe we succeeded because we hired the best people for a role, no matter whether we're male or female or no matter what their, their, their color, their religion, whatever. So, and I'd say the same with, with venture. I don't care if somebody's a sales orientated founder or a tech, a tech led founder. What I will say is that our sales-led founders have probably done better, okay? But there's a company called Atlassian. Yes. And they have two tech guys. Yes. And they haven't done too badly. Yes. So, and I'm sure there's lots and lots of stories where tech-led founders have done unbelievably well. Yeah, absolutely. So, what about the mentor side? Um, you, you obviously love to give back and see people grow. Um, why do you feel like you need to do it, though? Well, I feel I need to do it because it's what 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 inspires me to get out of bed in the morning. I hope the people I mentor feel the same, the same <laughs> thing. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I love adding value and, uh, and there are lots of companies that have done extremely well uh, that I, you know, I, I feel, I'm pretty sure the founders would say, I, I help to make a difference to their business. Some of them I have no equity in, but it, it doesn't bother me because, as I say, my return is saying I made a difference. I, uh, yeah, I, I gave some input and that founder took my advice and said, Dave, this was the best advice I ever got or whatever. And to me, that's you know, what, what's important to me. So it's not, and I feel as long as people keep, you know, in anything in life, you know, when I was the CEO and the company got bigger and bigger and we had maybe 30 salespeople around the country and a salesperson phoned and said, Dave, would I come with them to see a customer? I thought, great, I must still be able to add value. If the sales guy wants me 
to come and help them close a deal, I must be doing I must be doing something good for the company. And no matter who you are in the company, I think everybody wants to make a difference. And it's the same. As long as people call me and say, can I come and get some advice for you? It makes me feel good because it makes me feel, hey, maybe I'm still relevant and I can still add some value. What about women in tech? You're in on the government panel. Uh, why is this important to you? Well, I think, yeah, as I say, I think diversity is 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 absolutely critical, and uh, and and from every point of view. In fact, we had an event on Friday. It was called the Future of HR, and we actually had four of our founders present, and it was actually awesome because. We had our youngest founder was 22. Our oldest founder was 57. Wow. We had a female founder, Melbourne-based company called Circle In. Awesome. Two female founders, they're awesome. And then we had a company called Go One. Uh, one of the founders was actually, his previous role was as a, a GP. He's a doctor by profession. He's, he now heads up his sales and growth. And I can tell you, I would, uh, uh, he's probably one of the best sales guys that I've ever, ever come across. Fantastic. So... I think diversity and inclusion is, is critical, but I think for the right reasons, uh, and when I say for the right reasons, that that you want to make sure you, you employ the best people for a role. I'd want to make sure that I've got that position because the best person for that role. So like we invested in Circle In, uh, we have two female founders because we think they're the best. But why women in tech? Because it's, it's such an under-resourced area of technology today. You know, you look at companies like NAB saying they're looking to hire 2,000 technical people. Yeah. At the, bottom, at, the, at the bottom end, you've got a startup, you may have two or three people who are saying, we need two or three tech guys. And then you've got a whole lot of people in the middle saying, we need tech people. And if you exclude women uh, or don't encourage women to get into, uh, technical, we, we're actually missing out on an unbelievable skill set, an unbelievable part of the Australian economy to actually get employed in, in, in an area that's going to be growing for many, many years to come. Yeah, it's definitely the future of our um, economy to be, uh, you know, uh, creating tertiary-valued products and services. As yep. We've seen manufacturing's gone a little bit by the wayside in this country. We need as many people uh, engaging their brains and delivering value. Quick fire round. Yep. Who's your favourite comedian? Jerry Seinfeld. Tennis player? Roger Federer. Better beaches, Australia or South Africa? Australia. The water's warmer. Less sharks too. Favourite band? Beatles. Favourite artist? I'm not, I'm not such a culture guy, but I'd say Dale Frank, an Australian artist. Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? Probably Nelson Mandela. Um, what trends in technology are you interested at in the moment? I guess uh, data analytics, business intelligence, any, anything that uses machine learning. AI, AI. yeah. yeah. Um, and what advice would you give anyone who wants to start a startup or, or a business? When an answer is a long, a, long, a long answer to a short question. So my father used to say to me, rather earn 50 cents for yourself than a dollar from somebody else. And I always say that's the exact opposite advice that I'd give my three kids. I've got three sons. And why the hell would you want to go to have all the aggravation of running your own company with all the, all the issues, the challenges, the heartache, the, the likelihood of success when I've seen so many people who've worked at amazing companies like Cisco's and Google's and Macquarie Bank's and Facebook's or Zip money's you've made 
a huge amount of money by getting stock options in a company and a decent salary. So why would you want to take 50 cents for yourself and a dollar from somebody else? However, if any of my boys said, Dad, I want to try something, I would back them to the hilt with a provisor that I would say to them, if after a reasonable period of time, you're not earning at least as much as you would in a job, and two is you're not building an asset that you can sell one day, don't waste your bloody time. Because I've seen lots of founders chip away and chip away and chip away and chip away. And, you know, Holly was a typical example, amazing founder. He just went on too long. You know, it was a great exit for the shareholders uh, or the original VC guys. But for him, he was taking, you know, he was earning 50 cents for himself instead of a dollar from a Cisco. And, uh, you know, at the time of exit, he probably ended up with $400,000. Whereas if he had taken a job at Cisco, he would have been earning you know, a tr- three times the salary. He would have been on stock options. And he was as good, if not better, than 90% of the account managers that I dealt with at Cisco. So I just think it's, it's not easy. It, it always looks, uh, you know, because people are looking at the Atlassians, the zip monies, the afterpays, you know, the canvas. Those are few and far between. And uh, it's, as I say, I would, I would encourage any, anyone to give it a go, but I would say just be realistic about what what your opportunity cost is, what you're giving up, and, and make sure that you're building that asset that you can actually sell one day. Uh, what's next for David Shane? Well, hopefully a few unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, thanks for your time, warmth and inspiring words. Thank you for being on Discipline. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tony.